and welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your host and your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to better manage your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. Along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, and also better informing the general public about mental health issues. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Welcome back. Uh, this is the podcast for February the 10th, 2016, pre-recorded for that date. And thank you very much for tuning in. First up on tonight's podcast, this item relates to the goal of trying to reduce the stigma and myths and misconceptions and misinformation that's out there about psychiatry and mental health issues. Um, many people level the charge that antidepressants are overprescribed, uh, that too many people get them who ought not to be on them. And uh, the people who make this claim cite the fact that there are an overwhelming number of prescriptions written for these medications, and uh, a large number of people who take them, and we'll get into some of those numbers hopefully uh, in this article, but uh, the fact uh, is that people who make this claim that they're overprescribed and too many people get them who don't need them really don't have the data to back it up. Um, so this paper is written by a very large group of researchers and they come to us uh, not from any industry source, okay? This is not from any of the pharmaceutical companies who sell antidepressants, right? This comes to us from people who work in health systems. They're not even academics, okay? They're people who work in health systems, such as the Group Health Research Institute in Seattle, Washington, uh, the Health Partners Institute for Education and Research in Minnesota, uh, and a few different Kaiser Permanente health institutes in Denver, Honolulu, and Pasadena. Uh, so they decided to look at this issue, and we'll see what they found. The use of antidepressants has increased dramatically, over the past 20 years in the United States and in other higher-income countries. Approximately 10% of United States adults now fill one or more antidepressant prescriptions in any calendar year. That is quite a bit of people. The uh, antidepressants prescribed by primary care physicians account for the majority of this increase. That's right, it is not psychiatrists who write the vast majority of prescriptions for antidepressants. It is primary care physicians. 
in the past, some estimates have ranged anywhere from 50 to 85 percent of all antidepressant prescriptions written by non-psychiatric physicians. Now let's uh, put the article aside for a minute and just talk about that one issue. You may ask, well, why is that? Shouldn't the antidepressant prescriptions be written mostly by psychiatrists? Well, of course, um, you'll get no argument from me. That's uh, certainly my bias as a psychiatrist. But the fact is there's far too few of us to treat all the people who need that type of help. And because there is still such a stigma about getting help for problems like that and taking those medicines, the vast majority of people would prefer to discuss these issues and uh, get treatment for these issues from their primary care physician uh, with whom they feel most comfortable. Now, increasing rates of antidepressant treatment have raised concerns about overprescribing to patients with less severe depression. Community surveys suggest that the rates of antidepressant use may now exceed the prevalence of depression, especially among older adults. In the 2003 Collaborative Psychiatric Epidemiologic Surveys, 26% of recent antidepressant users did not meet diagnostic criteria for any lifetime psychiatric diagnosis, according to a structured research interview. In the 2010 National Survey on Drug Use and Health, only 44% of respondents taking antidepressants reported experiencing a major depressive episode during the past year. These findings were interpreted as evidence for substantial diagnostic inflation and attracted significant public attention, meaning that the people were given the medication even though they didn't meet full criteria for the diagnosis. Uh, I should mention here, well, what does that really look like for major depression? That is severe depressed mood all day or just about the whole day, every day for at least 14 days in a row, uh, significantly decreased interest in normal activities, and then several other types of symptoms from either inability to sleep or sleeping too much, uh, fatigue, lack of motivation, trouble concentrating, increased or decreased appetite, decreased interest in sex, persistent dwelling on self-critical or negative or pessimistic thoughts, and finally, thoughts of suicide. Uh, so that's full syndromal major depression in a nutshell. And strictly speaking, if someone doesn't meet that criteria, isn't it true they ought not to get that medication? Well, uh, you can say that's very true. On the other hand, antidepressants are also used to treat anxiety, uh, whether or not someone has any depression. So there's lots of reasons why someone might take an antidepressant besides just major depression. So in this study, the authors used data from four large healthcare systems, uh, the ones that I mentioned 
where the uh, researchers are from, and they used the uh, data to examine the severity of depression at initiation of antidepressant treatment. So they're trying to see, all right, well, if too many people think that antidepressants are overprescribed for mild depression when it's not warranted, uh, one thing they would look at is, okay, look at the level of severity of depression when someone is first given medication. Now, <clears throat> their data and their conclusions from their data did not support the claim that the majority of patients treated with antidepressants have not experienced depression severe enough to warrant medication treatment. In the sample, they looked at approximately 85% of the adult outpatients starting antidepressants reported at least moderate, if not severe, symptoms at the time of their first prescription. And that 85% was generally similar across all the four different uh, health systems that they looked at. Again, two different Kaiser Permanente systems, health partners, and group health. The lower baseline depression scores, in other words, uh, less severe depression when getting their first prescription, were more common among patients living in more economically advantaged neighborhoods. This pattern could reflect either a general tendency toward less severe depression in more advantaged patients or a tendency for more advantaged patients with mild depression to more often seek or receive treatment. Okay, so you can call these people... Um, you know, the more well-off worried well, perhaps. The data also suggest a higher threshold for prescribing of antidepressants to members of racial ethnic minority groups. This could reflect a bias in providers' decision processes. In other words, uh, unfortunately, um, perhaps physicians would be less apt to consider prescribing medication to minority patients, you would hope that is not the case. That would be blatant medical discrimination. Or it could also be due to a difference in patients' treatment preferences. Previous research does suggest that both African-American and Hispanic patients are less likely than non-Hispanic whites to prefer antidepressants for treatment of depression. There are strong cultural taboos in those and other uh, minority groups against psychiatric treatment in general and psychiatric medication in particular. Nonetheless, some of the uh, differences that are out there uh, may be due to demographics. Now, the lower initial depression scores in other words, uh, less severe depression when first getting the antidepressant prescription, were also more common among patients treated by psychiatrists. How about that? So if anyone is overinflating things diagnostically and prescribing antidepressants for people who you know, aren't severely ill enough to, to get them, it's uh, my colleagues and I. How about that? 
Well, the authors speculate that may reflect a lower threshold for prescribing among psychiatrists or the fact that patients seen in specialty settings may more often present with other indications for treatment, such as other types of psychiatric conditions like anxiety or a past history of severe depression. Now, I would say that um, among our specialty, uh, although someone might not meet full syndromal criteria for major depression, um, I would dare say if we see someone suffering enough and uh, it's, it's impairing their quality of life, we'll still recommend medication. All right, we'll take a commercial break here and uh, finish up our look at this article when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, and we're examining research that refutes the charge uh, leveled at doctors who prescribe antidepressants that they are overprescribed for people who don't need them. Uh, the researchers found their data do not support concerns that increasing antidepressant prescribing by primary care physicians has led to diagnostic inflation or more frequent prescribing for mild depression. Um, The authors believe these practice-based data more accurately assess severity of of depression when the patients first got their antidepressant prescription than retrospective data from community surveys. Um, Long-term studies suggest that past episodes of depression are often not recalled, and that would Uh, affect the reliability of the data from surveys. Furthermore, those who are not depressed 
at the time they're interviewed for a survey are less likely to recall prior symptoms of depression. Therefore, those who experience full relief from depression while taking medication would be less likely to recall past symptoms of depression. So there's this bias in recall when patients are surveyed about the severity of their illness and what appears to be unnecessary or inappropriate prescription of antidepressants for mild depression might instead actually represent a successful treatment of what was at least a moderate, if not a severe, episode of depression. Now, that being said, prescribing of antidepressants to patients with mild symptoms of depression may sometimes be appropriate. While every patient in the sample studied did receive a diagnosis of depressive disorder, it is possible that medication was prescribed primarily to address some other illness, such as a co-occurring anxiety disorder like we talked about. Also, for a patient experiencing a relapse of depression following successful prior treatment with medication, restarting antidepressants when mild symptoms reappear before a more severe recurrence or relapse occurs would certainly be a reasonable practice. It is likely that such practices account for at least some of the 15% of patients who started taking antidepressants but only had minimal or mild depression. The severity threshold of depression for when to prescribe medication is certainly not a bright line. In any attempt to evaluate the appropriateness of prescribing must allow for both the imperfection of standardized measures and the variability in individual patients' clinical histories. With those allowances, the finding that approximately 15% of outpatients starting antidepressant treatment reported mild or minimal depression does not seem particularly surprising or concerning. So the combined data from these four large healthcare systems simply do not indicate that overprescription of antidepressants for minimal or mild depression is a significant public health concern. And I would also add that there is a lot of data to show that even when people are properly diagnosed for depression, they only get the help that they need at best about a third of the time. Um, so while some level of charge that antidepressants are overprescribed, uh, <clears throat> that ignores the sad reality that too many people who suffer from depression uh, don't get the help they need, don't get well. All right, next up on tonight's podcast, we have some child and adolescent mental health updates. Uh, next few items, we'll start with this one about victimized adolescents are more at risk of thinking about suicide or attempting suicide 
at uh, age 15. Uh, a study to be published in the February 2016 issue of the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry reports that adolescents chronically victimized during at least two school years are about five times more at risk of thinking about suicide and six times more at risk of attempting suicide at age 15 compared to those who were never victimized. Uh, this is apparently the first study to show a predictive association between victimization, suicidal thinking, and suicide attempt in mid-adolescence. It also takes into account a variety of factors, including previous suicidal thinking, mental health problems in general by the age of 12, such as depression, oppositional defiant disorder, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, as well as family adversity. Using data from a longitudinal study of child development in Canada, where they uh, followed a general population sample of 1,168 children born in 1997 to 1998 in Quebec, Canada, until they were age 15, researchers examined the relationship between victimization by peers, suicidal thinking, and suicide attempts. The authors hypothesized that children victimized by their peers would be at higher risks of suicidal thinking and suicide attempt compared to non-victims. Overall, approximately 20% of the study participants reported being exposed to victimization by their peers. Peer victimization, uh, which could otherwise be called bullying, includes such as being called names, spreading rumors, excluding someone from a group on purpose, as well as attacking someone physically, and also it includes cyberbullying, um, things uh, such as uh, abusive comments, um, by text or on social media, such as Twitter or Facebook. Now, according to the authors, victims reported higher rates of suicidal thinking at age 13 and 15, 11.6% uh, higher at age 13, 14.7% higher at age 15, compared to those who had not been victimized, uh, only 2.7%, at age 13 and only 4.1% at age 15. Which, by the way, it's uh, a little bit disturbing that even without ever having suffered this peer victimization, that you know almost uh, 3% of kids at age 13 have thoughts of suicide and 4% of kids at age 15 do. Um, in any case, the authors also observed higher rates of suicide attempts for the victimized adolescents, uh, at age 13, 5.4% had attempted suicide. At age 15, of those who were victimized, 6.8% had attempted suicide. And then if you look at the kids who had not been victimized by their peers in this way, uh, at age 13, 1.6% had attempted suicide, much less, but still, uh, even that small amount is disturbing. And 
1.9% at age 15. In particular, the data showed that the 13-year-old adolescents who had been victimized by their peers have two times more risk of having suicidal ideation two years later and three times more risk of suicide attempt. The authors point out that although victimization predicts suicidal thinking, it does not necessarily cause it, and this prediction does not apply to all individuals. Only a minority of victims will later develop suicidal thinking or make a suicide attempt. Why these adverse experiences affect individuals remains to be investigated uh, and why they're affected differently. Adolescence is a crucial period for suicide prevention. As a result, the authors suggest that effective interventions may require a multidisciplinary effort involving parents, school teachers, principals, and mental health professionals. All adolescents, victimized or not, who think often and or seriously about suicide should see a mental health professional such as a psychiatrist, psychologist, or an accredited psychotherapist. Well, the article certainly does a great job of articulating the problem, and of course the solutions that they propose make perfect sense. Um, but I think that all those stakeholders in this issue that the authors listed, parents, teachers, principals, other school administrators, uh, mental health professionals, um, they all need to focus on combating peer victimization and uh, fighting it, uh, putting uh, rules and laws in place against it, um, and creating a culture in which that is unacceptable instead of just thinking, oh, well, this is what kids have to go through and uh, that's just part of growing up. Uh, we have to change that line of thinking. Uh, we have to make sure that this is considered unacceptable at any time for any reason. And only when that change is integrated at all levels in the adults uh, will that hopefully filter down into the kids. Uh, it's very, very sad to think um, that you know, the victims of bullying are at so much higher risk for suicidal thinking and behavior uh, when even those who don't uh, have that problems with their peers have a baseline of, you know, one to two percent of uh, those types of thoughts and behaviors. We can only hope that more and more studies like this will get the adults involved in this situation who can do something about it to take action uh, to prevent kids from victimizing each other. All right, well, we're going to take another commercial break, and when we come back, more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. 
These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, Visit LibertyOnCall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health news. Next, a significant number of young people with undiagnosed bipolar disorder. Around 10% of United Kingdom primary care patients prescribed antidepressants for depression or anxiety have undiagnosed bipolar disorder, according to a new study. Researchers from Leeds and York Partnership National Health Service Foundation Trust and the School of Medicine at the University of Leeds interviewed young adults from general practices in a study published in the British Journal of General Practice. Bipolar disorder often presents with depression and can be difficult to diagnose. People who have had periods of symptoms of high mood, such as increased energy and activity, increased confidence, over-talkativeness, or being easily distracted, often don't recognize these as significant and don't tell their doctor about them. This can lead to inappropriate treatment, such as the prescription of antidepressants without mood-stabilizing medication, which might increase the risk of mood remaining unstable. Um, Let me explain a little more, lest you think this is some obscure problem. If you prescribe an antidepressant, which is a mood elevator, to someone who you do not know has bipolar disorder and therefore they are prone to highs and lows in their mood, then what's going to happen if you give them a mood elevator? 
you're going to significantly increase the risk that that medication will flip them into a high and make them cycle up and down rapidly between high and low. Now, the study found that among people aged 16 to 40 that, who were prescribed antidepressants for depression or anxiety, around 10% had unrecognized bipolar disorder. This was more common among younger patients and those who reported more severe episodes of depression. The study recommends that healthcare professionals should review the life histories of patients with anxiety or depression, particularly younger patients and those who are not doing well for evidence of bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder is a serious problem with high levels of disability and the risk of suicide. When it is present in depressed patients, it can easily be overlooked. Underdiagnosis and overdiagnosis of illnesses bring problems. General practitioners are the greatest part of the National Health Service in the UK, and hopefully that study will be of some help to them and their patients in helping the better recognition of bipolar disorder. Now, the editor of the journal was quoted as saying that uh, Dr. Tom Hughes and his colleagues from Leeds New York Partnership NHS Foundation Trust recommend that general practitioners look carefully at patients with depression and anxiety disorders, particularly younger patients and those who are not doing well with their treatment by reviewing life histories for evidence of symptoms, this could provide people with better treatment and quicker recovery. Okay, now lest you think that I shouldn't be making such a big deal out of this situation in the UK, I would like to explain that this particular issue has had huge implications going back more than a decade here in the United States and is an ongoing issue that definitely has to be paid attention here in the States and all over the world, really. There is a warning on all antidepressants about causing suicide. And this is very strange, right, of medication that's supposed to help depression and prevent suicide may increase suicidal thinking and behavior? How is that? Well, let me give you some of the background into how those warnings got on the uh, prescribing information for antidepressants, and it relates directly to this issue of giving antidepressants to young patients in particular with unrecognized bipolar disorder in the UK. A lot of the research that was done that found that antidepressants may increase the risk of suicidal thinking and behavior, not suicide itself, mind you, but suicidal thinking and behavior in young people uh, brought on by antidepressants. That research mostly came out of the UK. And the situation there is they have this National Health Service and the vast majority of mental health care 
is conducted not by psychiatrists, but by primary care practitioners or general practitioners. And you might say, well, the situation is pretty similar here in the States, isn't it? We were just talking earlier uh, about the uh, study that showed antidepressants are not generally overprescribed, as many people think, uh, but most of the prescriptions for them are written by non-psychiatric physicians. Yes, it is true that is very much the case here in the States, but in the UK it's even more exaggerated in favor of the prescribing of medicines and treating mental illness is the general practitioners, not psychiatrists. So it turns out that the reason the research found such a high rate of suicidal thinking and behavior in young people getting into depressants was because of all of these young people who had undiagnosed bipolar disorder. If you give someone who's bipolar antidepressants, like I was saying before, you might elevate their mood and make them cycle rapidly up and down between high and low. It can also cause symptoms of severe agitation, and this maybe would cause someone to start having thoughts about suicide or uh, do things to harm themselves. And so really the lack of appropriate diagnosis of bipolar disorder was the main reason there was this increased signal of young people who were given antidepressants having increased suicidal thinking and behavior. Now, the warnings against suicidal thinking and behavior uh, on the prescribing information for antidepressants resulted in a drastic decrease in the prescribing of these medications for really all age groups, with the consequence that suicide rates among adolescents, which had been declining for 10 or 15 years prior to these warnings coming out, started to increase. So the warnings about suicidal thinking and behavior, instead of keeping people more safe, resulted in actual higher rates of suicide. Uh, <clears throat> drawing it back to the article I'm talking about today, you see the direct connection between lack of appropriate diagnosis of bipolar disorder, inappropriate prescribing of antidepressants, adverse side effects leading to suicidal thinking and behavior, uh, strict warnings for the prescribing of these drugs about those symptoms, doctors and patients shying away from the drugs because of those warnings, with the result, worse illness and worse morbidity from suicide. So the lack of a proper diagnosis has had a devastating cascade of consequences. And <clears throat> general practitioners, whether they're here or across the pond, as it were, are not sufficiently trained enough to make these subtle diagnoses. And uh, while the people in the UK encourage general practitioners to look at life histories and uh, go back and see if they find evidence of bipolar disorder, uh, my concern and my contention is that without specialized training, they're still not going to be able to recognize it. Um, so I think that there needs to be 
instead of uh, serious warnings and prescribing information about risk of suicide that would scare patients and doctors away from utilizing treatments that can save lives, instead, there need to be very, very ardent and strident warnings about proper screening for bipolar disorder so that you don't wind up giving these medications to people who should not be taking them. Uh, and that's the emphasis there should be instead of the overemphasis on the thoughts of suicide. It's important to note that those warnings mention suicidal thinking and suicidal behavior and that there were absolutely zero kids who committed suicide in the original studies that generated those warnings. Um, <clears throat> so to this day, there are uh, people of every age who uh, decline to take antidepressants because of those warnings. And many, many researchers, uh, ever since those warnings came out over a decade ago, have done follow-up studies and refuted those findings and found that instead antidepressants, when prescribed properly for patients who have the proper diagnosis, prevent suicide, not increase the risk of it. Um, and there is uh, a movement to pressure the FDA to change or modify or just get rid of those warnings uh, because too many people have uh, refused necessary medical treatment and, and doctors have shied away from prescribing them, fear that if they give it to a patient and they commit suicide, of course, they'll be liable. Um, so again, uh, this latest study from the UK points out that before someone gets an antidepressant, there needs to have been proper screening uh, for bipolar disorder so that uh, they can avoid serious adverse consequences of antidepressants in those patients, at the very least uh, causing someone who's depressed to become manic or to cycle uh, between depression and mania rapidly. And at worst, the antidepressant could cause severe agitation, making someone uh, extremely uncomfortable in their own skin and start thinking that they cannot bear to go on with life and uh, have thoughts about actually wanting to hurt themselves, at least or at worst, take their own life. All right, we're going to take another commercial break. We'll be back with more mental health news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? 
and what is the best place to go for the care that is needed. We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Day, your source for all mental health-related news. just want to finish uh, some thoughts about the uh, item we talked about where a lot of young people are undiagnosed with bipolar disorder and therefore given antidepressant medications which can do them harm. It's very important to point out that older people are also uh, given antidepressants who have bipolar disorder which has not been properly diagnosed and the consequences can also be devastating. So um, it's important to focus on any age patient who is being given an antidepressant should be properly screened for bipolar disorder before getting that medication. Next, parental depression is associated with worse school performance by children. The reason this article caught my eye is because of the uh, long-standing and ongoing controversy about the effects of women taking antidepressants while pregnant and what the effects may be on the developing fetus and newborn child. Uh, And I think a very important part of examining that controversy is what is the impact of maternal depression. And that needs to be weighed against what the consequences of the medication are. So here, this article talks about what happens to kids whose parents are depressed. Having parents diagnosed with depression during a child's life was associated with worse school performance at age 16. This was a new study of children born in Sweden, and the article was published online in Journal of the AMA Psychiatry. Of course, depression is a leading cause of morbidity and disability worldwide with adverse consequences for those affected by depression and their families. Poor school performance is a powerful predictor of future health outcomes and subsequent occupation and income. Therefore, it is relevant to examine student performance for the effect of parental depression. Researchers looked at associations of parental depression with child school performance at the end of compulsory education in Sweden at about age 16. The authors used parental depression diagnoses from inpatient and outpatient records and school grades for all children born from 1984 to 1994 
in Sweden. The final analytic sample had more than 1.1 million children, and authors examined the associations of parental depression during different time periods, including from before a child's birth and any time before the child's final year of compulsory schooling. In the national sample, 33,906 mothers, or 3%, and 23,724 fathers, or 2.1%, had depression before the final year of a child's compulsory education. The authors report worst school performance was associated with maternal and paternal depression at any time before the final compulsory school year, but the association decreased when adjusting for other factors. In general, both maternal and paternal depression in all periods of a child's life were associated with worse school performance, although paternal depression during the postnatal period did not reach statistical significance. Maternal depression was associated with a larger negative effect on school performance for girls compared with boys, according to the results. That's interesting. Curious about the gender difference there, but regardless, it points out the impact of maternal depression on a child well into adolescence. Uh, never mind uh, thinking of what the potential impact of maternal depression uh, could be in the womb um, versus the impact of a woman taking antidepressants to prevent depression. Now, the, uh, the authors could not identify if the children were living with their birth parents during the entire duration of the study, so that is one limitation of the data. But the results suggest that diagnoses of parental depression may have a far-reaching effect on child development. Because parental depression may be more amenable to improvement compared with other influences, such as socioeconomic status, it is worth verifying these results in other groups. If the associations observed are causal, the results strengthen the case even further for intervention and support among children of affected parents. Now, there was um, an editorial accompanying this article written by Myrner Weissman, Ph.D., of Columbia University of New York. She is a leading psychiatric researcher uh, over the past couple of decades. And uh, she said, this study concludes that diagnoses of parental depression may have a far-reaching effect on child development. We extend that conclusion to state that effective treatment of the diagnosed parents may also have far-reaching effects. The Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act of 2008 and the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act of 2010 promised to significantly expand access 
to high-quality intervention for mental health and substance abuse disorders for the American people. Until the promise of a more personalized understanding of a common disease such as depression becomes reality, access to treatments that are vigorous, substantiated, and evidence-based is a public health opportunity for improving the lives of both depressed parents and their children. And it makes a very important point. This may be a study done in Sweden, but it certainly has relevance for other uh, highly developed and um, economically advantaged societies. And certainly we have to pay attention to uh, the effects <clears throat> of treating depression in parents, uh, the benefits that can have not only for themselves and their children. Uh, so again, by extension, if you can see problems uh, all the way out to age 16 with parents who are depressed, uh, I do think that bolsters the argument for treating depression aggressively um, <clears throat> when children are first conceived. And again, that needn't be medication. If psychotherapy alone is effective in treating uh, a pregnant woman's depression, then of course uh, that's much better. All right, next up on psychiatry today. Online therapy for those affected by body dysmorphic disorder. Um, body dysmorphic disorder, if you don't know, people with a very unhealthy obsession that something is hideously wrong with a certain aspect of their appearance, um, even when that is not the case. And this obsession becomes very unhealthy, very disabling. Uh, these people have multiple plastic surgery procedures after which they're inevitably unhappy and uh, they continue to have more and more and more. And, and instead of fixing a perceived defect where there was none in the first place, they wind up becoming more uh, grotesque looking, unfortunately. Uh, some people felt that uh, the late uh, pop singer Michael Jackson suffered from this disorder. And in a worst case, um, if left untreated, it can lead to hospitalization, substance dependence, and suicide. A team of researchers based in Sweden and the UK looked at the effectiveness of a therapist-guided internet-based cognitive behavioral therapy program for body dysmorphic disorder compared with online supportive therapy. There were 94 adult patients with a diagnosis of body dysmorphic disorder who received either type of this therapy for 12 weeks. None of the patients had any face-to-face -face contact with a therapist. Both groups with the different types of therapies were followed for three months after they finished treatment. The online cognitive behavioral type therapy resulted in significant improvements in symptom severity, depression, and quality of life compared with the supportive psychotherapy done online. And the gains were maintained for at least three months after the end of treatment. At that point, 56% of those receiving the cognitive behavioral therapy uh, were classified as responding to treatment, which is 30% uh, or more reduction in symptoms, compared with only 13% who got the supportive type psychotherapy. And 39% of those receiving the cognitive behavioral therapy no longer met diagnostic criteria 
or body dysmorphic disorder. Um, that's rather remarkable. That would be akin to saying they were cured. And then they had the patients who had the supportive psychotherapy cross over to the cognitive behavioral therapy after six months, and their symptoms also improved. And again, this is no face-to-face -face contact with a therapist. Uh, they were satisfied with the treatment, found it acceptable, and a good percentage improved. So this is actually very good evidence that a um, computer-based and online-based uh, cognitive behavioral therapy technique can be very helpful for what is uh, potentially a very serious mental health disorder. And I might add that whereas you might find an online psychotherapy to be somewhat uh, impersonal and, you know, how can that be effective when you're not having face-to-face -face contact with a therapist? Well, I think this type of treatment is ideally suited for those who suffer from body dysmorphic disorder because they're so embarrassed about it. They're very reluctant to discuss it with anyone, and they almost always suffer in silence with it. Um, but I do think there are certainly other disorders for which online cognitive behavioral therapy, self-administered even, can be helpful. It's around the lack of ability of therapists to see everyone and lack of insurance coverage. Well, we have to wrap up tonight's show. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.